Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This podcast series explores the theme of second chance. We raise questions about who deserves a second chance, who decides who gets a second chance, and what a second chance actually means. We speak to people from all walks of life about their experiences, including those who have been given a second chance, and some who you might believe are beyond deserving a second chance. On this episode, my guest is John Lefebvre, the former president and co-founder of the payment processor Nutella. In the late 90s, John Lefebvre was approaching middle age and living out an unpromising legal career in Calgary, Canada. Then he jumped on board a dot-com startup as founder of Nutella. As the company's fortunes rose, along with those of the online gambling industry, the payoff for Lefebvre and his partners would be astronomical, but it didn't come without a price. Lefebvre was charged in connection with the creation and operation of an internet payment services company that facilitated the transfer of billions of dollars of illegal gambling proceeds from US citizens to the owners of overseas internet gambling companies. He pleaded guilty to charges of conspiracy to promote illegal internet gambling transactions and served 45 days in federal prison. It wasn't his first time inside. Listening to John's side of the story makes for interesting listening. Let me start by sort of saying I, I've read a little bit and heard a little bit of, of, of your story. And, and if I was introducing you, I don't know where to start because I kind of read that you and heard you tell the story yourself that you first went to a prison when you were 17, 18 years old for, for selling a, 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 an undercover cop some drugs. So you did a bit of time then. I think it was eight months. And then at some point you became a lawyer. 
You then went on to become an entrepreneur, setting up a, a dot-com business, which made you and your partner and probably lots of other people millions and millions of pounds. And then that went down the can when you got arrested for, I think it was money laundering and racketeering. Um, but that didn't stop you because you're you're a musician, you've written books, you're an activist. That's how I would want to introduce you because it sounds interesting, doesn't it? And people want to listen to it. But I'm sitting in front of you, John, and I'd like to invite you to introduce yourself because we don't always fit the mold that people want us to fit and and the the descriptions that people often label us with ex-prisoner or multimillionaire. So, John, let me invite you to to describe who you are, either today, in the middle, or at the beginning. How would you, John Lefebvre, am I pronouncing your surname right, Lefebvre? Lefebvre is exactly right. That's good for you. Thank you. How would you describe yourself, John? Well, you know, I've done those things that you've, those things that you've spoken of have all happened to me. <laughs> I'm a bit up in the air about uh, whether or not that defines me. Those things define me. Uh, they um, they definitely have something to do with what people know about me, you know. But, um, you know, just like Bob Dylan said once, you know, uh, I've I, I read a song and it makes you, makes you think of yourself, you know. So uh, you think that makes you think you know me, but you don't know me. <laughs> you, know, you know, I can prove that in any court, he says. I'll add to that that I, I grew up in a very kind of uh, middle class uh, normal uh, upbringing. My my mom uh, my mom was widowed when I was three. My dad died when I was three. I had a little brother one and a sister five. He was a soldier and he died in an automobile mishap uh, in eastern Canada in a blizzard in the wintertime. And mom raised us on her own, and uh, you know she uh, she got a pension from from the uh, military, and uh, ninety two dollars a month, I think it was in nineteen fifty five, and uh, she uh, raised the three of us on her own. Went to university uh, when I was in when I was an adolescent. Uh, she got a uh, a B Ed, was a teacher, and then uh, later on improved that to. Uh, a master's degree in counseling and became a high school counselor. So she was, um, and she was a high school counselor in the high school I went to. So, she, you know, all, all of the girls there had warning about me, <laughs> but my mom was a very progressive. Uh, she was Catholic. I was raised a Catholic and that's uh, not that important to me anymore, but I did learn some of the most important things I learned about um, what it means to be a good person from uh, that fellow that they introduced us to. Uh, what the hell's his name? Uh, Jesus. <laughs> but I, I think he was one stone cat, you know, and I, and I, and I really dug what he, what he was putting down about um, love and compassion and, um, you know, what our responsibilities to each other are. And um, they, that, those things stayed with me. My dad died when I was about three. Uh, I was so, I was, uh, you know, kind of lacking you know, that in my life, you know, all, and all, all that implies. I know, uh, you know, that's lots of people have that problem, but I was <laughs> one of them. But, you know, when it was, um, you know, father and son breakfast for the altar boys, one of the other dads would, you know, invite me to come along. <laughs> that was, you know, that was the way it always worked for me, you know. So it was, I was, I was in a lovely community, very, very privileged. I'm a white, you know, I'm a white guy growing up in a pretty much white country. I'm on the West Coast of Canada here, 50 miles south of Vancouver out in the ocean. And um, an island called Salt Spring Island. And 
I tried to, you know, make the best of myself with all of that. And I wound up when I was 28 going to university and learning a couple of things. And I wound up in law school because I didn't have any science or math. So I couldn't be an accountant or a, or, or a physician. <laughs> so all that was left for me was law. <laughs> yeah. And law is a pretty good profession to be in. I mean, um, it depends. Criminal, commercial, it depends, doesn't it? But studying yeah. the law does take some. It's a great area to to have knowledge in. I, I never found a rewarding career in it myself, but lots of my friends did. I always I always thought it was uh, kind of annoying. You know, you you have this. You imagine that you know I'm going to be a lawyer and then I'll be my own boss, right? No, <laughs> you wind up with a whole filing cabinet full of bosses, and you owe them each a fiduciary obligation. You know, so it's a it can be a terribly oppressive career. But um, I, I did it and I enjoyed it, and I'm really really grateful for the um, things I've learned from it. You know, one of one of the things we learn when we're lawyers is that um, when we're taught to be lawyers, anyways is that, um, you know, it's a, it's a poor lawyer who stops doing his research when he comes up with an answer that suits him, uh, suits them. Sorry, it's a new day, isn't it? When they come up with an answer that suits them. Because obviously, you know, there's some other guy out there who's working just as hard to find an answer that isn't that one. <laughs> and, and, and you need to know what he's finding too. So the long and the short of it is studying law, in my experience, was very, very, very gratifying because it, uh, it taught us how to be professional about thinking of things from the other guy's point of view. And you studied the law at what age? Did you say twenty eight? Yeah, I grew up a little bit. I was a, I, I was a, I was a hippie and you know a bum basically, taxi driver, construction laborer. You know, uh, smoked way too much pot out in the bars, listening to rock and roll bands and whole tables full of beer and all of that stuff. And by the time I was uh, twenty seven or so or twenty eight, I decided it was time to at least go to school and try to make something of myself. And then um, when I was in uh, First year law school, I got pregnant, and um, that you know tends tends to you know provide a little bit of f- focus. <laughs> and uh, my you know my daughter Emily now is forty two, and she, we have a granddaughter Ida who's uh, about six or seven, and she's super smart, very very brilliant. And so uh, that's uh, that's the way all that went. How, how did you end up in prison as an eighteen year old then? Because your trajectory at that point, sounded like you were on a completely different path before you you had a baby, got pregnant, and, and grew up, if you like. Well, when I was, you know, when I was a kid, I was like, I was born in 1951. In 1969, I was 17. That was like, um, Canada was always about two years behind the United States, but we were just culturally, but, you know, we had our sort of summer of love, you know, all the, every, everybody was, you know, buying boatloads of acid and mescaline and passing them around for free and all of that stuff. You know, we had a bucket of money in the cupboard for, for cash. And if you wanted, if you needed to go to the restaurant for a piece of lap, apple pie, you just stuff your hand in the bucket, and take some money. You know, it was, you know, I was high as a guy could be, um, you know, uh, the first year Led Zeppelin made a record and, you know, you know, we'd been listening to already, you know, Nashville skyline was coming from Bob Dylan by that time. So we were, we had some wonderful mentors. It was an amazing, an amazing time to be a, to be a kid. And, you know, we, you know, it was so right. It turned out to be so, so right. I mean, even now all the psychiatrists are, you know, delving into the use of hallucinogenics to treat very, very serious diseases. But I think the ones that, if you've ever spoken to any of those guys about it, I think they all agree that, you know, um, it's, it's odd of us to think that, we have to be ill to have the benefits of those experiences because <laughs> you, we, I, I don't, I don't know where you've been, but I, I can, I can assume you've at least read the book 
And I think that um, the uh, psychedelic experience is, a, is an amazing um, connectivity experience, both with our true nature and, you know, are with the, you know, deeply within ourselves and with everybody else outside of us. So, so when you ask me, how do I define myself? You know, we're getting a little bit closer to it when we talk more about those experiences, you see, all of those, little, you know, I think of um, knowledge, knowledge and, uh, and uh, experience as being sort of like data and code and, uh, you know, data and code are not computing capacity. And I think of what we are, Raphael, you and I, we are consciousness. We are all of those things that happen to us, all of the things that we know, all of the things that we've done, all of the experiences that we had. Those are just like, you know, those are things that you can put on a disc, but you can't process them unless you have this thing, this miracle within that we have. We call it, we blow it off with the name consciousness. <laughs> but it really is miraculous. And I think of myself now as being, you know, um, I know this is going to sound funny to some of your listeners, but um, I, we, we are the universe's vessels of consciousness. If it weren't for us, the universe would be miraculously fascinating, endlessly astonishing, but for no one. That's pretty deep, actually. But you still haven't told me how at 18 you ended up in prison selling drugs to an undercover cop. Oh, well, I got I got arrested for being a hippie. Right. I got arrested for, you know, we I lived with a bunch of I got people who were mostly older than me. But, you know, I was I was 17. And there, but there was people. So it was really old guys, like 23, 24. <laughs> What did that and, um, experience? What did that experience do to you, John? I mean, eighteen, going to prison for drug dealing, or at least being involved with older people that were involved in drugs. So you actually went to a lockup. I mean, what did yeah, that do at that point? At that point, I'm not too sure. But over time, it taught, taught, taught me quite a bit. But I, I, you know, I think a key thing I will mention is that you know I knew in all of this that I was not on a wrong path. I may have been on an illegal one, but I wasn't on a wrong one. <laughs> well, indeed, That's a good way of putting it. Actually, <laughs> I, w- I was on an illegal path, but not not a wrong one. I, and I, I feel a little bit delicate saying this because um, I don't really put too much importance on it. But it's it's really the, my my facts are that I have never been to prison for anything that's still illegal. <laughs> <laughs> you That's know, an interesting one. What, you know, everybody, you can, did you know that you can buy mushrooms in downtown Vancouver now? I didn't know. There are stores that sell, you know, all the, all the regular, you know, um, paraphernalia and they're selling, they're selling mushrooms now. And, um, the, uh, prosecution, the, pro, the, uh, the prosecutors here have a, a non-prosecution protocol about it. So actually, I think you can still get in trouble for selling LSD. And when I was arrested in 1969, it was LSD, not mushrooms. <laughs> they were the, um, you know, I was sitting at home one night and there was a knock at the door and they, um, I came to the door and they said, you know, this guy who was dressed, I should have known he was dressed in like one of those Nehru shirts. Some people used to think those were hip. <laughs> well, it was the cops. <laughs> Nehru shirts were hip. And he said, you got any acid? I don't know. Probably, you know, I'll, I'll go look. And I went and I, and I wasn't really doing that. I was just hanging out. Right. But there was a couple of people in the house who were doing that. And I you know, said, you know, I asked, you know, whatever his name was. Um, he says, yeah, yeah. And so I brought some to the door and I passed it to them. And I took the money and I gave it to the. So I was a, um, 
I was a trafficker. I trafficked between the pusher and the buyer. So, and so that was that was this, that was the source. Of this. Another time, they came back and got two two grams of hash. It was that, that those were different hippies at the door? But when I got when I got to court, they charged me with one gram. And I thought I was offended because that, that wasn't one gram. I waited. It was two grams. <laughs> you know, I'm an honest guy. <laughs> My lawyer recommended I don't bring that up. <laughs> what was your sentence? What did you get sentenced for? One year. I got one year. Uh, the Crown appealed it. They wanted one of my friends got four years in those days. They, there, were, there were people writing into the, uh, you know, the city newspaper in Calgary, Alberta, uh, uh, saying that we should, you know, string all these, string, string them all up out, out in the city square, and, you know, so they can you know, teach their kids a lesson, you know, and that kind of thing. But um, my mom was able to afford a very, uh, well, he didn't actually charge very much, but a very prominent lawyer. And uh, he, uh, I, I, so I did my eight months and he stalled the crown appeal until after I was uh, out of uh, prison and back into university, you see. And then he took me before the court and the judge said to the prosecutor, wait a minute, this guy got a year. He did the year. He got released for good behavior. He was a great, you know, and now, and now you want to put him back in prison. And so that was, that was Criminal court's a funny place, you know. Very often the arguments don't have much to do with law. <laughs> no, it, it doesn't. But you're out. You're 19, 20 now, and then within a few years you were studying law at university. Well, it was a few years, but it was about five or six years before I went to university. What did you do in those five years, just carry on enjoying life? Actually, I did go to university as soon as I got out of jail when I was 19. But I spent all of my time, you know, getting high and playing bridge and then quit, you know, and then I was like a taxi driver and a construction laborer. And, you know, I was on unemployment insurance and you get up in the morning and you wait till it's 11, 11, 11, and then start smoking hash oil. <laughs> That's pretty much what my life was like when I was a kid. But after about five years of that, then I thought, no, I, I've got to, you know, this, this isn't going to cut it for me i'm gonna to have to do something else so i went back to university I, I, I don't know whether it's luck or your own determination but i suppose at that point in your life where you were consuming drugs and you know sort of jumping between jobs with no i, I hesitate to say no real direction because i don't know but you then found focus and this is when you got pregnant right this is when you had a baby on the way and decided you needed to to do something more i don't know responsible and become a lawyer yeah, pretty much that's right. Actually, I went to university just on, you know, sort of uh, general principles. And then after about three years of undergrad, uh, they let me into law school. Uh, and uh, well, in there for actually in that period, I ran for president of the Students Union at the University of Calgary and won on, on my platform was if you want a politician, vote for somebody else. But if you want a you know, a good guy, then I'm your guy. And I won. And so I, and you know, presidents of university students unions have very interesting jobs for a year, you know, because you're, you're on the board of governors of the university and you're on the general faculties council and all the, you know, the governing bodies of the institution. So you get an eyeful of, of how governance uh, occurs, right? And it was, you know, I was on the Senate, you know, and all those things. So it was a beautiful experience. But on the basis of that experience in just two years of undergrad, they let me into law school. And then in law school, Right after the uh, international law final exam, uh, we had a party and uh, my uh, lover at the time, Catherine, and I found our way to a secluded room and wound up 
pregnant <laughs> after <laughs> after the international law exam. And that's that's Emily. So Emily's, you know, a, a very, very uh, a treasure that's still with us. And did you practice law? Did you then spend the next X amount of years practicing the, the law? Was that commercial or criminal law? Was you an active lawyer? Yeah, yeah. I, I practiced law for about 12 years, I think, or 11 years or something like that. But at first I was in a firm and I was kind of seconded to the um, – the, the law firm I was working at was uh, uh, an agent for the federal attorney general to prosecute combines investigation act things. That's like um, antitrust things, uh, price fixing law. They call it in Canada combines investigation. I don't know. <laughs> so I did that and I felt like that wasn't preparing a career for me because I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going to be a federal prosecutor, and I was, but I was feeling kind of cornered for it in it. So I um, eventually just kind of dropped away and opened up my own practice with a, a, a partner. Then Jane, uh, we opened a practice down on the street and just took all comers. You know, it was kind of like a, you know, the Sunnyside legal clinic <laughs> and it was kind of a, st- a storefront shop. And we did that. And that was, um, that was sort of rewarding for me. I didn't really like, like I say, practicing law very much. It was a bit stringent. But I certainly enjoyed meeting the people and helping them. So that was, you know, that was lovely. And then eventually at the the tail end of that career, a a fellow came into the office and uh, he was um, an acquaintance of one of my partner Jane's clients and he needed some real estate work done. So I was doing that side of the real estate. Steve Lawrence came in and Jane passed him over to me. And then I I worked with Steve for a little while on kind of small time real estate developments, residential, you know, strip malls, that kind of thing. And then he stumbled on this idea of uh, internet gambling and uh, he um, asked me what I thought about it, you know, and he got to, asked me if I'd sort of help him along with an idea that he had and see if we could make anything of it. And I thought, why not? I'll help, you know, and I, maybe I'll get back up to net worth zero. Uh, <laughs> and that, that was really the, the extent of my ambition at the time, <laughs> to get back up to net worth zero. But it went very, very well. It went very well. And all of the uh, – he, he, he tried an online casino, and uh, that worked very well for him. But then he thought, you know, where the real money is is in sports betting, and he's tried to run a, a, open up a bookie operation. But, you know, anybody can run an online casino, but you have to know what you're doing to be a bookie. There's a lot, a lot of trouble there if you don't, you know, know the score, right? And he did not, so he got he got really walloped on the online uh, on on the sports betting side of it. But in doing that, he stumbled upon this idea of um, if somebody brought some professionalism, responsibility, security uh, to reliability to the uh, online money transfer side of online gaming, that that would be a good little business model. And then he said, you know, if you want to help me husband this along a little bit, and I said. Sure, why not? And then we started this thing called NetTiller. I came up with the name NetTiller. Get it? NetTiller was uh, kind of styled after PayPal, and it's you know how 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 things work. But it came and, before uh, PayPal, right? This kind of online. Uh, uh, we're we're contempt. We're 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 sort of contemporary. We're sort of at the same time. We were there's they were starting out when we started out. They actually came to us and said, you know, because we were using PayPal to uh, get money into our system. You know, we're telling our clients, if, you, if you're if you a PayPal, just go to PayPal and put your money from PayPal into NetTeller. And, and all of a sudden, you know, we were getting like $17,000 a day from PayPal and, pay, and then and then 70000 a week and that kind of thing. And then PayPal gave us a call and said, what the hell are you guys doing? 
And, uh, you know, they said, you're, you're in gambling, aren't you? And, so, and they, 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 they continued with us for a little while. Uh, and then we had a meeting. We had to go down to, uh, you know, San Francisco and meet with those guys. They put their foot down and they said, well, here's the deal. <laughs> uh, you, you know, and they gave us some, some, some choices. And the choices were, you know, not that attractive for us. But if, you know, if we didn't go along with what their play was going to be, then they were just going to go head toe to toe with us and compete, which they did. Uh, but um, that was really good for online gaming when PayPal did that because it introduced the whole PayPal market to online gaming, and that was that was very kind of like uh, it's good for everybody in the, in the racket. But um, we decided we'd go on our own, and we did. But then uh, eBay came after PayPal, and uh, when eBay decided to go public, they realized that you know they can't really be supporting online gaming anymore as an American public company. Right. Because America has this, you know, this thing about gambling. And so what happened essentially for us, from our point of view, is that PayPal dramatically expanded the, the field of play and then just folded up the tents and left. And, and we inherited all of that. And then a few years after that, they came knocking on my door. I had uh, two uh, two houses on Malibu Road in Malibu. California. One of them was about eight million, and the other one was twelve million dollars. And I was in one of them one morning, uh, Martin Luther King Day, and the day they they knocked at the door. You have to come to the door right now, <laughs> right now. And um, so I was scurrying around trying to hide the pot I was smoking that night before. <laughs> but the next thing you know, I was handcuffed and sitting at the table and talking to these guys, and uh, we were under arrest for you know facing these like. There, there were three 20-year charges. There were, there was, there was uh, money, like I say, money laundering, racketeering, and conspiracy. So I was looking at 60 years. And they said, but if you, you know, wink, wink, and that, you know, we, we could make it a little easier. <laughs> and uh, that's the way it went. So I spent that night in prison in downtown Los Angeles. And uh, it was about four or five days before I got out of there. And then um, I was out on bail for about... Uh, I don't know, four or five years. And then and during that time, I, I so-called cooperated. They thought they were going to find a whole bunch of stuff like money laundering and, and all that, you know, racketeering and all that stuff. But, um, you know, we were we were a public company. You know, we were, you know, filing all of our, you know, we were, uh, we were public on the London Stock Exchange. London, uh, London uh, you know, England, as you know, is a, a gambling-friendly jurisdiction, obviously. Yes, we are. <laughs> And so we set up over the Isle of Man. Actually, we set up in the Isle of Man. So, but but it sounds to me, John, like you had a legitimate business that was making lots of money. I don't know what the company was worth at this point. So, what was it that they were saying that you had done wrong, or was you aware of what you were doing wrong? So, when they came, knocked on the door, put those handcuffs on, you knew that you were caught. Well, start to start. First things first. We were tracking we were halfway through a fiscal year at that time and tracking to transfer 14 billion dollars mostly between north american gamblers and offshore gaming sites and we got three percent of every one of those transfers i I don't know what that equates to but it sounds like hundreds of millions of pounds it's hundreds of millions yeah hundreds of millions and we we achieved a market cap of uh about two billion dollars and i had 27 percent of that wow (laughs) It was it was pretty astonishing, you know. It was a we of all of those kind of dot com things. Netteller isn't the most famous, but it was the only one of all of them, including you know uh, Google and you know uh, 
the, all of them that were, um, that actually could prove up some cash flow. And we were proving up huge amounts of it. So it was a very attractive IPO. <laughs> and, we, and, you know, we, we, it was the run for the roses, you know, we were, <laughs> and we were in the paddock with the roses around our neck, you know, when the cops came and said, hello. <laughs> and do you think it's because the business was so successful that they targeted you? Or was it because you were doing something like money laundering and, you know, racketeering? Yeah, I, I think they were mostly concerned that we were involved with other illegalities besides gambling. Gambling is illegal in the States and lots of you know, only two of the states have legalized it so far for for private enterprise. Uh, and all, but all of the other states operate gambling, <laughs> you know, one way or another with lotteries or horse racing or what have you. But all the other states had gambling, but only two of them were legal. Um, so the pretense was that we were breaking gambling laws. But I think they were concerned that we were, uh, you know, money laundering, that sort of thing. But we, we were filing all the proper documents with FinTrack and, the, you know, they come, you know, the, as, as a matter of fact, that, that, that's an organization, international organization that follows money around to see if it's being transferred legally and whatnot. But we were, you know, we did all those things and we were clean as a whistle and they were disappointed that we weren't, you know, money laundering. But the reality of it was two times the Department of Treasury, the U.S. Department of Treasury Secret Service came to us and asked us if they could help, if we could help with prosecutions. Uh, because they were trying to chase people who were um, money laundering and they thought that some of them were using NetTeller. And we gave them all our data and they were able to arrest the two people and they took them away because, so, because you know, we were running our, we had, you know, we had uh, algorithms to, to study if anybody was trying to like conglomerate money, you know, and that kind of thing. So um, we got, we had a plaque, a plaque of commendation from the Department of Treasury Secret Service on the wall, you know, the day we were arrested for <laughs> for what we did. I think really what happened, Raphael, was uh, a couple of young guys um, got out of law school together. One of them went into private practice and one of them went into prosecuting the federal prosecutor's office. And they just were talking one one week and they said, you know, what about this online gaming? You know, if we if we took a run at these, you know, like I can prosecute them and you can defend them and we'll both do really, really well. And maybe I'll get a bunch of, you know, forfeitures and you'll get a bunch of really expensive clients and, you know, we can make a splash. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Coincidentally, that initiative was uh, welcomed by the hotel lobby in New Jersey and Nevada because, you know, people were standing up uh, in you know, the Congress and saying things like, if we don't do something about this online gaming, people are going to be sitting at home in their house coats gambling. <laughs> but in the end, in the end, did you did you walk away with just the charge of, you know, running an illegal or, or running an operation that was illegal in certain states in America and, and come away with your wealth? Or did they, the authorities, take it all from you and put you in prison. 50-50. The, the night I was arrested, the stock value went from six pounds to 60 pence. So I at that time, I probably had about, I don't know, $250 million worth of stock still, maybe $300 million, And it went down to, you know, like 30 million bucks or something like that. And, you know, uh, uh, I wound up... Uh, I wound up forfeiting $40 million from my pocket. My partner, Steve, forfeited $60 million and the company $140. So that between the three of us, we forfeited a quarter of a billion dollars. Not too long after that happened, um, you know, and you'll see where I'm going with this in a minute, but not too long after that happened, 
Raphael, they, the focus switched from online gaming to uh, Wall Street. And they, you know, th- that same band of prosecutors realized that, you know, there's, there's a lot of money in this, you know, forfeitures thing, you know, and if we can go after, you know, and then they went after some guys on Wall Street and then, and then they were getting billions in forfeitures from uh, money launderers and, you know, proper, proper criminals, <laughs> you know, really t- t- died in the wool criminals. <laughs> I don't distinguish myself from them too much, but only, only I'm, I'm glad they were there because they took the heat off of us. And then I said, you know, like I say, you know, online gaming, you know, became it's pretty much legal everywhere in the States now. You know, it's, you can't turn on a you can't turn on a football game without saying, you know, poker.com play for free. Right. And then you go there and you play. But is that controlled by the state and not by private companies? Uh, no, those are uh, th- those are uh, it's all over the states now in different different ways. And some of the states is legalized uh, for uh, licenses out to private enterprise. And in other, other states, the states are running running the show. But, uh, you know, they, there's some experience in that. In the, in the United States, there are seven states that they're called the horse, they call them the horse racing states. But, you know, it was California and New York and Kentucky and I don't know where else. But there are seven states that had horse racing was legal. They were those horse racing uh, people were uh, had had figured out how to do on online ga- horse racing but only within their own state and then they figured out how to do it on a reciprocal basis so if you lived in one of the horsey states you could gamble in the other so you could live in new york uh by belmont but you could go online and gamble at hollywood racetrack in los angeles if you know uh so the, the germ the germ of the idea of online gaming was already working, but then it very quickly became a matter of well, who's controlling this? Are we going to let the you know um, these offshore you know hoods whatever in Costa Rica and Antigua have all this action, or can we just hold it unto ourselves? And so, essentially, what they did was they used the criminal law to have a market monopoly on online gaming and keep the the world of free markets out of it you know, to, to keep it among Americans. So that's that's the way it wound up, pretty much. And, and did you end up being imprisoned oh, yes. for, for this? Yeah. You did? Yeah, you eventually, yeah, I wasn't, uh, you know, you, you, I, I was listening to you with another fellow the other day, and you are talking about um, standing on your head, doing time, st- yeah, well, I could do that, stand on my head. I had standing on my head time. I got 45 days. You know, I got 45 days. The first day I walked into, into prison in New York and Manhattan, um, uh, you know, my, there's a young, a young guy in my cell and he started throwing his uh, mattress up on the top, you know, because he, he was sleeping up. He was throwing the mattress up on top. I said, what the hell are you doing? He says, you old, you old, you old, you can't sleep up there. How are you going to get up there? <laughs> right? like, <laughs> no, man, no, 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 that's not happening. If you knew how long I was going to be in here, you know, you know, no, just, you just stay where you are. I'm going to, cause I, cause I only had 45 days to do. And I thought, you know, I'll get in shape again, climbing up into the top bunk. But uh, so I had you know, my, my prison experience from when I was a teenager was very instructive. It was very, very helpful with learning how to um, comport oneself uh, in, in grown up prison. Um, you know, uh, one of the things I learned when I was 17 was you do your own time. Everybody's innocent. You know, everybody's got a complaint, you know, everybody's got, you know, problems, something, you know, uh, that, so if there's, as, as you well know, I don't need to tell you but you know, whining to other prisoners is uh, frowned upon, <laughs> right? 
But you realize too that, um, you know, and I don't need to tell you this, but probably most of your listeners know this too, but uh, when we're imprisoned, the most important thing I think is to uh, respect all others, respect them for what they are for human beings. Don't necessarily respect the things they say or the things they do, but you pay, pay them the respect they're entitled to for being humans and show them that you require to be respected as well. And if you do, um, you get along very, very easily. You know, the, the, you know, the chill people in there will, will have your back. And, and that's what, that's what happened for me. Besides that, I was, you know, I was 50, 58 or something, 55 by the time I went to prison. And um, do you remember Christopher Hitchens? I do remember that name. He's a great writer from England. Yeah. And he was, he, he showed up in, you know, New York, New Yorker magazine. And, he he wrote know, for the Daily Mail, I think it was, uh, one of the ultra right ways. But tell, uh, yeah, but, tell, tell me. I just wanted to say, Christopher, I just wanted to say Christopher Hitchens said this thing. He said, yeah, he was hanging out with this guy, Martin Amos, and people thought they were lovers. And Christopher Hitchens said, good for you guys. And he says, when I was hanging out with Martin, I was 25, and I was so old that the only people that would fuck me were women. <laughs> so at 55 in prison in New York, I was, you know, I was pretty safe on that score. So <laughs> you, you obviously done those 45 days. What did you take out of prison? Because even 10 days would have a profound effect on somebody who was living the life you were living. You're talking about a 12 million pound house in Malibu. All of a sudden you've exchanged that for a a bunk bed inside a prison as a convicted prisoner. I mean, so when you came out, had you changed? I mean, I know you're the same person, but did it have any profound effect on you where you had a different purpose in life? Yeah, I was changed. I, it grew me up. It grew me up a little bit. I was 55 and I was um, not, uh, and not, uh, probably not the most mature 55 year old in the world. But um, once again, it was just, I, I definitely had to gather myself because, it, you know, that first night I was there when they slammed that door and I'm in the bunk with this fellow that was, um, to see, he was a nice enough fellow, but, you know, he took those little boxes of milk. And he'd, 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 he'd take them and he'd leave them on the, on the uh, heater in our cell. And he'd wait till they were sour and then he'd get a, a bowl of salad. That's the in, 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 in prison salad is lettuce. You get a bowl of salad <laughs> and, and, and put this sour milk on them and eat that. And he thought it was really, really good. It was in little cubes by now, right? And then he'd stand there beside my bunk and talk to me like this with this sour milk smell. I go, John, you better really gather yourself here because this is going to be. And so I had to, um, and you feel super confined. I had a jet, you know, I'd wake up in the morning. I'd phone Dale, my pilot and say, can we go to Ireland this afternoon and see my daughter? And he says, yeah, okay. Okay. All right. I'll file a plan. And then I would, you know, jump on the plane and we'd fly her over the North pole route, you know, over Baffin Island and Iceland and that and land in Shan and gas up and fly over to Dublin. And that was, that's what my life was like. It was, um, it was the full, the full, the full meal deal. Uh, and then all of a sudden here I am, you know, in, in a prison wondering if I'm going to get away with any of this back to that part. Um, you know, I paid my forfeiture, uh, and, uh, yeah, you know, we had a, a, a plea agreement and in the plea agreement, we agreed to the, to the amount of forfeiture and I wound up, uh, you know, I'm on the beach in Western Canada. I've got, you know, a beautiful, beautiful house here and I'll never work again, you know, at least, well, not for money. <laughs> so I, you know, I, they, they, most people I know would think I'm really, really rich. 
So they don't really know what really, really rich is. But I'm still, I'm still, you know, most people would say loaded. So I'm fine. Well, that, that, that's a good thing because people who go to prison, even the richest who go to prison, where it's something to do with how they earn their riches, come out and talk about having nothing, even when they've got something. So it's, it's, it's refreshing, John, that you're sort of saying, I'm still very rich, even though I went to prison. But what do you do with your life and your riches today? Because I, I read that you're, you're quite an activist. You've written a couple of books and you've taken, you know, your experience, not so much your prison life experience, but what really interested me was reading this stuff about you believe in this, this sense of freedom and who we are and the basic needs for people. I heard you say a couple of things where people's experiences in other parts of the world where they have absolutely nothing. People don't recognize that in the Western richer parts of the world. What, what do you mean by all of that? If I've explained that rightly, I'm trying to say to people, listen, this guy might be rich. He might have been to prison. He's smoked a lot of pot, did LSD and, and whatnot. But there is a deeper side to you that cares. And that's what I am most interested in. Most rich people go off on this me, me, me trajectory. And I'm sure there is a lot of me, me, me in you as there is in all of us. But you have this care inside. What is this care inside? D-Smog, for example, I heard about. You've got this kind of blog page which tries to unravel the the conspiracies and the rubbish that people talk about sciences or the environment. Tell me a bit about what you do today, John, and why you do what you do today and what you're trying to achieve. Dsmogblog.com uh, is uh, it's actually uh, that's the American side of it, but there's a there's a Dsmog UK now too, and Dsmog GR. There's the Dsmog in Canada. Uh, but uh, the, the punchline for D-Smog blog is clearing up the PR pollution that clouds climate science. There's a huge PR battle going on these last 30 years about climate science. And my friend Jim Hogan was a uh, prominent um, public relations guy. And uh, he realized that, you know, a lot of this anti-climate science stuff was not science at all. You know, uh, climate science deniers were not science. So it was all PR. They were PR arguments. And up until that time, scientists, you know, including ones in our community, were spending a lot of their time responding to um, climate science deniers and, and kind of arguing, you know, call it science. But, you know, what Jim brought to the table was a very, very important concept. And that was never talk to a climate science denier about science because they have no interest in science. They don't do any science. They're not interested in what scientific conclusions. The only thing they exist for is to raise the level of doubt about climate science so that the, the racket can go on for a few more years, you know, a few more years at the trough. And scientists are very, very grateful for that because it freed them up to go back and do their work. And what DSMOG did was we'd go out and, uh, and we'd actually um, – the only thing you ever ask a, de a climate science denier about is where they got their money. And when you do, they always shut up. They always dummy up, you know. That, but we, we figured out how to prove where they got their money. And we you know, for instance, one time we went to Exxon and we looked in their um, annual, you know, their annual statements. And it showed, you know, like a, a $30 million payment to um, different institutions that were actively doing uh, climate science denial public relations work. When we, and when we published that, you know, about 
three weeks later, Exxon took all that offline. So we couldn't see it anymore. But those are the sorts of things. It was very, very successful because they, you know, at those days they didn't see us coming and we were able to um, show that, uh, uh, you know, Lord, what's his name? The the Moncton Earl of Benchley. You've got this crazy guy in London that was doing all of this anti-climate science stuff. But, you know, we were able to prove that they were getting all of their money from basically from fossil fuel companies. And, um, and, and it took a lot of the wind out of their sails. And, well, why uh, so do you we, care? Why, why do you care about something like this? Oh, well, you know, those guys are raping the planet for profit. You know, it's our planet, you know. Right? I mean, back to your question. I think what, we, what, what I realized was Earth is, is Earth is a single community. And, that, you know, we have to, there are some things, and we're, we're being forced to understand this now by three things, contagion, climate, and the constitutional crisis, governance, this, you know, uh, the um, lack of trust in authority, abusive authority, you know, um, and we, we, you know, we've grown up with this idea that, you know, we can have people like Putin in the world. And just if we just kind of accommodate them, you know, it doesn't really matter what, what they do inside their own little community, because as long as they don't screw with our program, you know, then they can go ahead and, you know, Stalin, whatever they want. They can do whatever they want inside, you know, sovereignty, right? You know, they get to, it's none of our business what goes on there. That's not true anymore. You know, contagion, climate, and, you know, these international problems that we're facing, particularly now, are proving us, proving to us that we are actually one community on earth. And we got to start acting like it. You know, when we look at our future responsibly, I think, you know, and you'll agree with me, I think, on this, Raphael. When we look at our future responsibly, we will see quite evidently and very, very quickly that there is no place in our future for guys like Vladimir Putin. You can't do deals with guys like that because he'll just keep on doing what he's doing for the same reasons he's always done it, you know, and he needs to be stopped and we have a responsibility. But back, you know, back to your question, my experience when I was a kid and, you know, being a hippie and all of that was a very good introduction to what is precious within us all. And we are all the same, the whole world over. We're super privileged in the Western world. We think of ourselves as being well normal, right? But, you know, we've got all of these things in our society that we take for granted. Banking, money, education, hospital, opportunities to work, lots of nice clothes, cars, all this. Everybody gets a Corvette, you know, <laughs> right? We were... Um, and we take those things for granted. Uh, but the lot, most people in the world can't take those things for granted. But we do take them for granted. And, and here's the twist. I actually think we should take them for granted, Raphael, because I think they represent in a lot of ways the things that are our privileges in Western free society are, are actually fundamental rights, I think. I'm going to go through a quick list here of the things that I think are fundamental rights. Integrity and security of the person. Reasonable access to food, clothing, and shelter. Reasonable access to the tools of self-improvement, education. Reasonable access to health care. Reasonable access to basic finance, banking. And here's the one that fits in your show. Reasonable access to justice. Last but not least, reasonable access to a healthy environment. So I have this feeling about universal rights. I think everybody on the planet is entitled to have those things. And, and here's the crux of it. Freedom comes at a cost. 
when we were kids, people used to tell us that freedom comes at the most, the highest cost. They tell us very earnestly, you must pay the highest cost for freedom. And that what they meant by that was go away and die in wars to protect everybody else's freedom. And that kind of didn't ring true to me because if that's true, then about, I don't know what the numbers are, but say one in 200,000 pay that price and everybody else gets it for free. And that just doesn't seem that fair to me. So I think really the the price of freedom, the price, the, the true price of freedom, I think, is people who have freedom have an obligation to strive every day they have freedom to assure that everybody else who is less fortunate in the freedom department is on a track to getting the same thing because we're all entitled to it. And the reason we're all entitled to it, Raphael, is because we are all the same thing. We are all the same thing. We are the universe's vessels of consciousness. We have this thing within us that's the same the whole world over. That thing that we all have the same capacity to dream. We all have the same capacity to be disappointed. We are all the same thing. And if we're entitled to those things, and I think we are, then my conclusion is that we're all entitled to those basic equalities, not equality of wealth, not equality of, you know, um, you know, land ownership or anything, but basic human needs. And we're living in a world where we can afford those for everybody. And it's a responsibility, I think. It's a responsibility of wealth and it's a responsibility of freedom to make sure that we're striving daily for everybody else in the world, everybody to have the same freedom. We are free in our countries to not have our clitorises slashed off with an old tin can top in the name of some religion, some mis misbegotten take on a, on, on a certain religion. <laughs> right. No, I, I, take I that for you, John, and I agree with you. We have a responsibility to go protect those young women, the whole planet. How, over. how though, how, how do we, I mean, and people do, don't they? You have activist campaigners, NGOs, people are going out there, they struggle financially or, um, and it, you know, to stop someone mutilating a female doesn't cost money. In, in all honesty, it's education, isn't it? And I believe that sometimes education can be the key to bringing about these, these universal rights. But what is the solution in the face of lack of resources? I mean, it, it's got to be the most challenging of all, isn't it? To bring about these universal rights, to bring about these freedoms and these equalities that we all have in our head. There's a difference us all dreaming and believing and wanting, but the practicalities and the physical side of it is the biggest challenge. So what is the solution? The, the biggest challenge is taking the money from the rich guys. Rich People have way more than enough money to provide these fundamental basics to everybody on the planet. Raphael, 10 times over. They cry and they whine and they say, oh, 2% of my wealth over 100 million will we'll, we'll leave the country, they say to us so self-righteously. We'll leave. We'll never come back. Where are you go? France. You know what? If America is charging 2%, France will be doing it by next Tuesday. I guarantee you. And because it only makes sense. But... 2% on all of the wealth in the, in, you know, Elizabeth Warren, who ran for president, the, the, for the, the Democratic nominee for president when in the Joe Biden election had this wealth tax that she was proposing. And it has some problems, but one of the, one of the basic fundamentals of it is that, you know, everybody who has an estate that's worth over a hundred million dollars will pay 2% annually on every dollar over a hundred million. Right. And if you do that, 
that captures 75,000 people in the United States. There are 75,000, you know, estates in the United States that have over a hundred million bucks and that would have to pay a dime on that kind of a tax. But if they did, Raphael, it would be trillions of dollars. And those trillions of dollars would be enough to provide childcare, uh, elder care, healthcare, education, guaranteed annual income for everybody, for everybody. That's what we need to do. And for everybody in the world. And it's not going to cost it. I'm a rich guy. I've been rich. I know how those guys think. And I know that they have enough money. You know what? We could do it all without going past four guys. We could do it all without going past four guys on this planet. Not, you know, not to mention 40, not to mention 4,000 guys on this planet. And that's how you afford it. The problem, there, there, another problem that's a practical problem, getting the money is, you know, this is, don't, don't, we got a lot to talk about here. I think America is on the verge of getting that kind of control back in the hands of people who are actually proper thinking, right? The two power, the constitutional democracy has provided to us tools that the selfish wealthy fear the most. The proof that how much they fear them is how much money they spend to keep them in their own hands and not let them into the hands of anybody else. Those tools are the powers to tax and the powers to regulate. When you hear somebody say smaller government, less taxes, those are dog whistles for I don't want to pay my responsibility. What we need to do is encourage young people not to turn their backs on government, but to understand that those tools of constitutional democracy, the powers to tax and to regulate, are the powers by which we will accomplish all of these things in the lifetime of my granddaughter. All of them. All we have to do is one thing, one thing. When we have elections in the Western world, about 35% who are the supporters of the selfish wealthy, the conservative side of the map, right? The people who are more concerned in property than in people. They always show up. They know what's at stake. That 35% always shows up to vote every time because they know what's at stake. What's at stake? The powers to tax and regulate. The only question in every election is how much of the other 65% are going to show up. And if they did in the United States on, in, 20, in 2020, uh, you know, 2022, 2024, there would never be another Republican government in the United States. 70% of the people in the United States support Roe versus Wade, but we've got a Supreme Court that wants to overturn it. Think about that. So if we can just get that 65% to decide, okay, this time I'm not going to go mountain biking. This time I'm going to go vote and I'm going to get involved and I'm going to find somebody who wants to run government the way I want to run government. I want to vote for somebody who wants to put the levers of power the powers to tax and regulate into the hands of proper thinking people. And when we do that, that will be all over for the whole rest of time. No more gerrymandered districts, no more voter suppression, no more, you know, closing down all of the, the voting areas in the black neighborhoods. <laughs> you know, they say all this goes for Britain too and everywhere else in the Western world. So I'd like to we, think what, it was as simple as that. It just bothers me. I say bothers me, but I just think about the politicians that often take power and they appease those, as you say, who, who have a, a vested interest or finance and back 
whether it's the Conservatives, the Republicans, the Democrats, or the the you know the Labour here in this country, that they all come no, from the same. Nobody's perfect. Not quite elite, but the same kind of closet. And so it doesn't matter what government you have in power, one will be more favourable to the sixty-five percent that you're talking about. But overall, whatever government. It's all about growing their wealth, not individually, but as a collective government. I don't know. It seems to me that the solution is pretty simple. You know, take from the very rich and disperse it a little bit more among people who need it. Just provide the basics. Um, that's my life's work. I do hope that those changes can bring about. But this is the work that you do, John. Is it? This is the work that you do personally, privately, to try and bring about these changes. I mean, these are big thoughts and require people of influence like yourself. And if you're standing there alongside people who also have that influence and power, your voice can be heard a lot clearer than than my voice and the people that I associate with. That's how I think. <laughs> the, the, the guys I'm talking about don't want me in the room. <laughs> but that doesn't matter. The people I'm talking to are the people who actually understand that, you know, Roe versus Wade, that and for, for those of you know in the rest of the world who aren't, you know, inundated daily with American politics, that's the law in the United States at today this morning is that uh, women have a right to abortion, right? A reasonable right to abortion. That law is just that this very day looking very much like being overturned. I don't know if you've opened your newspaper on that yet, but the Supreme I, Court I, I is, watched some of it yesterday. I watched yeah. some of it unfold yesterday. So 70% I mean, of America disagree with that. A woman should be making a decision for herself, whether she, her and her partner who impregnated her should be, in my view, making those decisions. No law, no religion should be deciding on whether or not a woman should or shouldn't have a baby and how, you know, it's it, it seems incredible that in this day and age, this kind of decisions are still being made by politicians and lawmakers rather than the poor people that decided to get in bed and make love or fuck or whatever it is and 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 have a baby or not have a baby. I mean, it seems incredible. Yeah, and it, well, right now the law is being made by a stacked Supreme Court in the United States. You know, I don't know if you've been watching over the last five years what Mitch McConnell's been doing about. Uh, seating new judges and he's you know he's been cheating <laughs> he's been cheating Merrick Garland was you know they you know he's done all you know anyways they're they've been cheating and they've stacked the court with people who are uh you know uh anti-abortion and and now that's going to but my my point is that ironically I think this Roe versus Wade abortion thing that's going on in America right now might be the end of the Republicans because 70 more than 70 percent of people in America um support Roe versus Wade but because of the tilt that, that you know, the Republicans have their finger on 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 the scales of, of elections by gerrymandering the districts. That's where you that's where you line up the districts unfairly. Do you know what do people know what that is? If you, so, if you have a black community uh, in the middle of a, in the middle of a town, and they would elect people who are supportive of social things, usually. I mean, this is a generalization, I know, but gen generally speaking, that's the way things go. Poor people like you know social programs wealthy people do not. What you do is you take that black community and rather than letting it have its own district, so it would have two people, two representatives in, 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 in Congress, what you do is you, you, you take slivers of it and attach it to these great big like honky communities and you basically eliminate 
you know, the honkies eliminate the us honkies eliminate the colored people's vote by, you know, by this uh, uh, it's, it's cheating on the districting. So that's what they've been doing. And they've been gerrymandering in the mayor. Some some for some reason, the court thinks gerrymandering is uh, is OK. In the United States, that's got to change. The Congress can change that. But so the government that's in power in the United States the Senate in the United States that is Republican and the Republicans that are, you know, threatening now to take over the house, they represent actually about 30 to 35% of the community, but they know how to trick the, they they know how to rig the game so that their 35% support turns into a majority in the houses of Congress. And all we take all it's going to take is one election when the 65% show up and those guys will be gone. There'll be no more gerrymandering. There'll be no more, there'll be no more, you know, voter suppression. And, um, you know, here's the, here, here's the most, here's, here's the most mind blowing part for me. We're going to do this. We're going to take the 2% from those 75,000 people in America. I'm a Canadian, so I get to shoot off my mouth about America. We're going to do that. And all of those guys are still going to stay in America and they're still going to get rich. Look at Elon Musk. He makes, I don't know what it is, $40 billion a year, $50 billion a year. He can afford a billion dollars or $2 billion. It's not going to hurt him. He can afford that easily. He could, you know, lie, you know, he's got some libertarian screw loose in his mind. But what's going to happen here? And here's the, here's the part I love the most about this whole story. What's going to happen when the, the economy in the West is at its best when the people at the lowest rung are well paid, they can afford new shoes, so they buy them. They can afford to go on holidays, so they go to the resorts. They can afford to get another car, so they buy them. They can afford to get education, so they improve their own lives and look after themselves well. What's going to happen is that when we take those 75,000 people and take their 2% over $100 million, the economy is just going to explode with new opportunities for everybody. And the rich are just going to get richer. They're throttling their own wealth by hoarding it. Hoarding, hoarding is the wet dream of wealth. It does, it's not based in anything real. The real love of wealth is passing it around. Because when you pass around love, you get a whole bunch more back. Guess what? Money is love. When you pass around the money, you get a whole bunch more. Is, is that is so? These guys are, is that what you do, John? Because you mentioned you're still very wealthy. You have your own pots of millions or whatever it have. Do you think you do your fair share of passing around that love, which is is money? I I, I appreciate that's a personal question, but given you your advocacy is that wealth should be fairly more distributed, or you know, a slice of Musk's wealth being spent on poor communities or providing social cares, et cetera. Do you do that yourself directly with your own wealth? My ma- my financial managers have all fired me. They keep quitting because I keep giving my money away. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. I'm, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to say I'm down to my last few million, but I still have a couple of thousand dollars for just about anybody who needs it. You know, and, and, and uh, so, yes, I do do my fair share. When I went for sentencing in 2011, my lawyers were able to verify to his honor that at, to date then I had given north of $50 million away to uh, proper charitable institutions and whatnot, you know, tax, tax charitable institutions and, and some that were not. But that's 
not all I've given away. I've got, you know, I've got a whole drawer full of files where, you know, I, I loaned people money to buy houses. I gave, I got mortgage mortgages and, you know, about 75% of those files are, you know, forgiven. I eventually just forgave them. So yeah, I've given away a lot of money <laughs> and I've lost some really good financial advisors for doing it, but they, you know, they still love me. My, the situation I'm in now is, you know, I mean, even if I did lose everything I had, I, you know, I put, you know, I probably, I properly don't belong on your show because I'm such a lucky guy. My ass fell in butter. You know, if I lost it all tomorrow, Raphael, I wouldn't have any trouble at all scaring up a peanut butter sandwich every day for the rest of my life just by walking around town and saying, hey, dude, how's your peanut butter supply? <laughs> they give it to well, me I mean, because, they, because I've got... Well, I, I, I suppose, you know, my, my, what's your legacy then, John? I mean, it sounds because I know that we haven't even touched on or talked about and don't really have time now to talk about the fact that you are also a musician. I, I've heard that you've got and have made your own music and have worked with some influential musicians. Uh, but what is your... Maybe that is, maybe that is your legacy. What would you like your legacy to be? Because like I say, from the beginning of this conversation, you've been down very many different paths. And it sounds to me, you've enjoyed every one of them. You know, no one of them, you know, one made you a fortune, one made you hallucinate, another one brought about your child, you know, another one gave you an experience of somebody talking to you with sour cream in their mouth in a prison cell. It's incredible. Not many people can talk about the experiences that you talk about and still smile and laugh about it the way that you do. So what will your legacy be, John? Um, I would hope that my legacy is that um, people will understand uh, what I have written about in my book, All's Well, Where There Are Earth and Why. It's it's a it's about where we are as a species in the universe, in time, in infinity, and in and in eternity. Uh, how far we've come, how far we've got to go, and the principles that we will adopt if we decide we're going to advance civilization. <laughs> if we do advance civilization, the principles that we adopt are are going to be that we will assure those basic universal rights to everybody on the planet, and when we do. We will have created Eden on earth and we will have earned it. We'll deserve it because we've earned it. And it's simple to do. All we have to do is provide those universal rights to everybody on the planet. Protection of this set of their in, in personal integrity and security, reasonable access to food, clothing and shelter, reasonable access to the tools of self-improvement, to health care, to basic finance and to justice and reasonable access to a healthy environment. We can do that. We're way more than wealthy enough to do that. And the magic of it is, is if we do that, we're just going to get more wealthy. On that note, I mean, it's it sounds idyllic, idyllic. It sounds like it's unachievable. But the fact of the matter is, it is achievable, isn't it, really? Because in our lifetime, it, it, it well, really not my is. lifetime, but maybe, maybe your lifetime, maybe not mine. I'm 70 I, I now. Don't I don't know. I'm not that far behind you, I assure <laughs> you. But it, it, it sounds like something. The thing about it that bothers me is I suppose most people want what it is that you are professing there. You know, most people want to know if they see somebody suffering, unless they're really cold and calculated, that they want to do something to help, but they're frightened. And if it means giving up something of their own, they hesitate. Yet plenty of people will bend down and lift somebody up if they've fallen off 
you know, fallen down or something. I think most people have the right intention, but once it threatens their own circle or their own immediacy, they they do hesitate. And I suppose that goes for the very wealthy. You know, even if you're taking a slice of 40 billion, you're taking 1 billion and it won't dent their bank balance. I suppose most people hesitate. The thing to say, though, about it, I mean, to me, that's my take on that is, you know, there are 340 million people in the United States. That means there's 399,925,000 who will not have to pay a dime. But the whole world around them is just going to blossom because we've tapped 75,000 people on the shoulder and said, dude, you, you, you got to pay to be in this club. Here, let me look at, let me tell you this quickly. This way. Those guys have the safest situation in the universe that we're aware of to have money and to hold it securely. You can't do that in Russia. You can't do that in China. But in America and Europe, you can have billions of dollars and own them securely. Why? Because us, us tiny little taxpayers, pay for the institutions of constitutional democracy that protect your property, right? And we pay for it with our income tax. This thing about you can't tax wealth, that's like taxing us twice. First you tax our income and then you tax our wealth. No, that's a fraud that those guys have been perpetrating on normal people forever. We spend all of our tax money on our income to provide them with the security that helps them to own their money securely and freely forever. That should come at a cost. If for no other reason, no moral reason, no other like humanitarian reason, if for no other reason we should be taking that 2% just to charge them the fee for the service we're providing. <laughs> you, you're obviously, you're, you, you know, you have very strong views about this. So I take it you're not the most popular guy in the world of of people that, that kind of understand what it is you're talking about. I mean, I equate it to you. You tax our income at different percentages, like here in the UK, it's 20, 25, and I think 40%. I don't know what the rich people get beyond that. Um, and I suspect that it's a similar system in, in the States. And so the wealthiest, those who earn the most money, are taxed the most. I don't know. That's if, not true. If, if it's not true, or is it? Is it true? It's the same system. It's, it's, not, it's not true. The wealthiest people are not taxed the most. <laughs> the wealthiest people are taxed the least. They have the most ways of avoiding paying taxes. Ask Jeff Bezos what he's paid taxes on all that money he's made at Amazon. Donald Trump paid more taxes than Jeff Bezos. Those guys, that the way we've set up our taxation system now is it lets wealth off the hook. And it's got to stop because we're we're providing those guys with the system that holds that wealth unto them securely and they're getting that service for free why because because we get okay that's right yeah no that's right we don't tax wealth we only tax income only working guys pay for the system the guys who are sitting on the beach you know like you know they don't have to pay right no we have to change that and i would encourage everybody in your community to never say another word like government needs to be smaller Government needs to be bigger. I would make an internal revenue service in the United States 10 times bigger. <laughs> and they target those 75,000 people. 
And those guys will say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to move to Russia. No, they won't. I'm going to move to France. Well, you won't go to France because France is, as soon as, as soon as France finds out a new way to take taxes, they'll take them too. <laughs> no, that's, that's when this, when, 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 when this house of cards falls, it's going to be beautiful and it's not going to be that long in the future, I don't think. Just to end this interview, John, it's the it's morning where you are. What what does your day hold for you? What will you do for the rest of the day today now? I'm going to probably write a little bit more. I'll probably uh, go for a walk up on the mountain with my wife over here and look down over the ocean and think about, you know, uh, what we've talked about. I'm very, very grateful to have been here today, Raphael, because it's been a great chance to talk to you. I've been, um, I'll think a lot about this because you have a lot of people on your show whose life is not as fortunate as mine. And I, I may be the most fortunate guy that's ever appeared on your show. I don't really know. I've only listened to a couple of things, but most of them are guys who've had the same kind of trouble you've had. And, you know, my life is, my life has been, you know, in my mind, everybody's life in my country, except maybe some of the First Nations people, you know, are, are super privileged. And among those, I am infinitely more privileged than any of them. So, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not the sort of guy that usually shows up on your show. I've had a struggle, but my struggles have never been about wealth or money or anything like that. My struggles have all been like, you know, psychic. You know what? Do you know what, John? I challenge you on that because not many people go to prison. You know, we can talk about sort of increased prison populations, but you do have the the very same. And this is really interesting because you you, you may see yourself as very different to the the guest I have on my show. But the guests I have on my show talk about resilience, and you've obviously got resilience because you've bounced off of many different trajectories in your life. People have survived prison, and that's not easy. Even if you didn't go to the hardest prisons in the world, the psychological challenge of being in prison, especially someone like yourself who was wealthy and living in a 12 million pound house, all of a sudden finds himself in a bunk bed cell being told what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and at what time, et cetera, et cetera. And the fact that, you know, most of the people that I talk to through their life's experiences want to improve other people's life experiences. And that's exactly what you're trying to do. You're trying to use your insight, your knowledge, your wealth even to try and improve people's knowledge, insight, understanding and lives. And so where you may think that you are not similar to the guests that I have, you are very similar to the guest. The only difference is, I suppose, most of them, not all, but most of them don't have the level of where you are in your life still today. You know, most people come out of that and they have been wealthy. Jeff um, Kizorzio, I think, and people like one of the guys from the Wolf Street I spoke to um, who had millions and millions and millions and then got caught up in the whole um, Wall Street scandal. He was one of those. And I, I, I just challenge you on that and think, you know, don't put yourself down or up because I think you are very similar to many of my guests in that your life experiences makes you think the way you do today. And you may not have thought like that had you not done that time in prison the second time. And that's where I think you are very similar to many of my guests, John. Well, that, I, that's very kind. I feel humbled for, for you saying that because I, um, I'm uh, honoured to be considered among that group. 
Well, that's good to hear. John, thank you so much for coming on my my podcast. It's been a pleasure listening to you and hearing your take on your own story and what you think about other people's stories. So thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me, Raphael. It's very good to meet you. Thank you. John's matter-of-fact explanation of his early years as a teenager to his arrest by the FBI at his mansion in Malibu or his rise and fall has been revealing to say the least. The wealth he retains despite the millions taken from him or that he has since given away still allows him to continue to live an extraordinary life and as he says he will never need to work again for money. His current advocacy on climate change and universal rights for everyone is impressive and so I hope you have enjoyed the story of what happens when a pot-smoking lawyer who only wanted to play music ends up as one of the lucky winners and losers of the internet boom. Now please share this episode with your friends, family and colleagues. If you want to follow the show for updates about new episodes, just click on subscribe. You can also be a part of this podcast by rating and reviewing what you've heard and tell us what you think. More importantly, tell others what you think by leaving some comments. This is an independent podcast, meaning we are doing this out of passion, not pay. But we do need your support to pay for the production. So please, if you want to make a small donation, click on the support link in the description at the end. If you want to connect, drop the show a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest booker is Sophie Warner. This episode was produced by the Second Chance Podcast and me, your host, Raphael Rowe. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. 
Code PROGRAM.